Well, the few, the proud. It's not only spring break, a lot of people are gone. The clock's also moved ahead. They're betraying us as well. So I know what you're thinking. You lost an hour last night. You're about to get it back. <laughs> don't, don't be tempted to listen to the voice of the devil, all right? Open to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verse 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. We're in the middle of uh, our study on the Beatitudes, which is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in for the last couple of weeks, which is toward the beginning of the book of Matthew, which we've been in for uh, however long it has been since we started Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Now, why do uh, harsh words feel so good sometimes? Why is it that, that there are occasions when someone may attack you or may say something bad about you that you responding with harsh words just... Well, it almost feels therapeutic sometimes. You can extend that out to somebody and just feel like you've really accomplished something. Maybe they accused you of doing something that you didn't do, or maybe they ascribed some sort of motivation to your heart that wasn't true when you did whatever it was that you did. Or maybe it was just gossip that you heard coming back at you, you, you heard from a long line of people. Or maybe they just came by and they just said something really insulting to you. And you drive home, you get in your car, I know I'm not the only one that's done this. You turn off the radio, and your windshield wipers just receive all of your spewing of animosity and frustration toward this person. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, I'm going I'm to give him a piece of my mind, I'm going to tell him, this is what, this is what I'm going to tell him. I know in our 12 years of, of marriage... My wife has heard that on a number of occasions where I've come home and I've said, you know what I'm going to do? This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell him this, that, and the other. And then after he says this back, then I'm going to go and I'm going to say this. And she just listens patiently. She just nods her head. And then after I'm done, she says, you're not really going to do all that, are you? And I say, no, I'm not. But it feels really good to say it right now. It can feel good to vindicate ourselves, even if it's just in words. This morning, we're looking at our third beatitude, and to me, this one is the most difficult one. This is the one that's the hardest, I think. And I think the reason that that's true is because what I just described is common to all of us. I think all of us can relate to that feeling. It's common to the human experience. And so it's, it's this, when we read about the meek, that we realize Jesus has different intentions for the Christian. Let's look at our text, Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 3 to 12, but we're going to focus on verse 5 this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The beatitude this morning is slightly different than the beatitudes that we've looked at so far, because here in this beatitude, Jesus actually quotes uh, from another passage of Scripture, from Psalm 37, 11. There, David tells us, as Jeremy read this morning, he tells us this in verse 10 and 11 of Psalm 37. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Not only do I think that this drives Jesus' beatitude here in the Sermon on the Mount, this psalm of David. But, but I think Psalm 37 actually informs the way that we should understand what Jesus is saying here. The meek shall inherit the earth. I think David's understanding of what meekness is in light of Psalm 37 is what Jesus is getting at. And I think that's really helpful because the term meek is really difficult to nail down sometimes. It's like nailing jello to a wall occasionally. It has a lot of different interpretations and a lot of different meanings, plus also all the cultural interpretations that we give to it. But in addition to defining meekness uh, biblically and the difficulty that exists there, this beatitude isn't in any of the other Gospels. So it's not like we can turn to Mark, Luke, or John and read there what Jesus said. Maybe he gives a little bit more meaning to the meek inherit the earth. So for, for us, it's really good that Psalm 37 is here. It can give us a, shed a little bit of light on what Jesus is talking about. And give us some context, maybe even some background behind Jesus' teaching. So as we look at meekness throughout the biblical text, we start to lay hold of a bigger picture that the Bible is presenting for meekness. There's a bigger reason why meekness is a really important part of the Christian life. First, let's define meekness biblically. The definition should pop up on the screen behind me. Meekness is an attitude toward all people that is free from malice and vengeance and is characterized by gentleness and self-control. That's a, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. I'm going to read it again. Meekness is an attitude toward all people that's free from malice and vengeance and is characterized by gentleness and self-control. Now, I want to say something just as an aside because I was thinking about this morning and I didn't even really even put it into notes or anything like that as far as what to say, but I thought it would be worth saying I think a lot of times there can be people when they hear a sermon, they may be going home and they may be in the midst of abuse at home. And so they may hear whenever I say the things that I'm going to say in this sermon, they may hear in their ears that I'm talking to them and I'm saying, when you go home and you're in the midst of a case of abuse, just take it because that's that's what it means to be me. I just want to make a disclaimer here and say that's not at all what I'm saying. The Lord has clearly given to us avenues of justice in this world where the law, the law actually provides us and affords us for, for 
justice, where they can persecute or prosecute the one that's doing evil. That's what the law is there for. That's what God has given it there for. And those things should be exercised. So it's not necessarily to you that I'm talking, that I'm saying go home and be meek and just take it, whatever that abuse case is. I felt the need to say that this morning because I, I didn't want somebody to get to the end of this sermon and somebody go, well, he's definitely talking to me and going home. I should just be quiet and, and, and take it. And that's, that's not at all what I'm saying. So I want to define meekness biblically. Let me see, an attitude toward all people that's free from malice and vengeance and is characterized by gentleness and self-control. Now, hear me loud and clear on this. Meekness is not a character trait that you can demonstrate in private. That's, diff that's different than the other two beatitudes that we've seen so far. The poor in spirit and those that mourn. There could potentially be somewhere in a closet somewhere, a guy hiding who is poor in spirit and who is mourning, who realizes that Christ is needed for his righteousness and he is grieving over his own sin. Meekness is not like that. Meekness is a characteristic that is demonstrated in response to others. It's lived out in front of people. Meekness is tested in the fires of persecution and interpersonal conflict. That's where meekness is demonstrated. It's in these times, when these times come, that you're, you're to ask yourself, am I free here from malice and vengeance? Am I free to respond in gentleness and self-control? And we have three objectives with this beatitude. The first is to define who are the meek. Who are they? And then the second is what do they do? Who are the meek and what do they do? So what sort of character, in other words, is Jesus singling out here that we can understand? And then third, we need to determine what it means that the meek will inherit the earth. What does that phrase mean, inherit the earth? So first, who are the meek? The meek are humble, gentle people. Pretty simple, right? Meek are humble, gentle people. Whenever you look up a definition, any definition, anywhere, you'll find these two terms, humility and gentleness, right there next to meekness. Probably even in the definition. And these terms, meekness and gentleness and humility, are really formidable terms. When you look at them, they're daunting terms. How do you know when you're humble? How do you know when you're meek? And really, these terms are so undervalued in our society. I was talking with Luke earlier, and, and we were talking about the fact that, that meek is almost a pejorative term, a bad term in our society. It almost is equated with weakness that that person is meek. These characteristics are not at all rewarded in our culture. And you'll recall, as I mentioned in the previous two weeks, that... Jesus is introducing people to the kingdom of heaven, and he's talking about, he's outlining here in the Beatitudes, uh, an introduction to what a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. These, these are characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Right here at the beginning of his introductory sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So he's beginning with this character profile of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And what we've discovered in the past two weeks, and it's actually absolutely true this week, that all of these characteristics are countercultural. And what that means is that they're not, 
they're, they're first of all, not characteristics that actually come natural to us. These aren't things that we naturally desire or want to do because we're a part of that same culture. It also means that the culture as a whole don't value these things at all. So what that means is that none of us, myself included, should be able to look at this list, anything on this list, and say, yeah, I'm really nailing that one. I am the best at that. That one doesn't convict me at all, in the least. I'm the humblest guy I know. None of us should be able to to say that. In fact, we're probably all thinking the exact opposite. As we go down this list, we're probably thinking, wow, I have a lot of work to do. You're not alone. All of us are thinking that. In fact, all of us are supposed to be thinking that. That's the reason that Jesus precedes the the Sermon on the Mount with the the phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He tells to us before he even starts the sermon, you need to repent. And probably most of his hearers are probably thinking, what do I need to repent of? I don't cheat on my wife. I don't murder my brother. I don't do bad things. I'm actually a pretty decent human being. And then Jesus starts opening his mouth and preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and all of us get lost in, oh, oh yeah, there's that. Yeah, yeah, I'm guilty of that one. Yeah. Oh, that's what it means. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm guilty of that one too. And on and on down the list we're going to go, and as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, all of us are going to feel guilty on that account as well. So really, when we hear the words humble, meek, and gentle, they should be formidable terms to us. They should be almost scary terms to us. It's really hard to see ourselves as humble, meek, and gentle. All of us should be thinking, I've got a long way to go on this. But this beatitude doesn't stand here in isolation. In fact, this beatitude is built on the previous Two. In fact, the whole list of Beatitudes are built on top of one another. Imagine a person comes to Christ. He can't get there unless he realizes his own spiritual poverty. Unless at some point he has realized that Jesus is required for his own righteousness. That otherwise he is impoverished. Jesus even makes this point to his disciples, does he not? They're talking about who the greatest is, and he says to them, look, if you, be, if you don't become like children, you're not even getting into the kingdom of heaven, much less be the greatest. Right? So he tells them, it doesn't matter how close you are to me. It doesn't matter that you're one of the twelve, that you followed me around all this time, unless you realize that you're in an impoverished state and that you absolutely need me. You're not coming to me claiming any status of your own, but you are coming to me in humble submission Unless you do that, you're not even getting in. So this person comes to realize that he's impoverished and comes to the Lord. Then a person who has realized his spiritual poverty, how can he not mourn over his own sin? If he's truly realized that he's impoverished, how can he not then turn around and mourn over his own sin and the sin in the world around him? As I said last week, we should constantly be in a state of mourning over our own sin and the sin in the world around us. And that doesn't mean we're mopey. 
It means like Paul says that we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Now, once we are awakened to our sinful state, how can we not mourn over our own sin? But then what happens as a result of our mourning? Well, as a result of these two things, it should turn us into meek, gentle, humble people. It's very difficult to be a boastful, arrogant person if we realize our own spiritual poverty. So the kind of meekness that Christ has in mind here can't be accomplished without the other two attitudes or beatitudes being at its base. These things are like stacking rings. They're built one on top of the other. And as I've said for the last two weeks, all of these characteristics that we're describing are all the same person. It's not like we get to pick and choose which ones we're good at. They're all the same person. So this gives us a picture, I think, of the character that we're striving towards as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So as I said when we started through the Beatitudes, that the themes of these Beatitudes will appear throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And most of the time, they appear in characters that we see along the way. And sometimes we see the opposite characteristic displayed as well. When it comes to meekness, we see this exemplified by none other than Jesus himself. In fact, the two other times that Matthew uses the term meek, the same term that Jesus uses here, it's applied directly to Jesus Christ. The first is in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is in the midst of inviting people to him. And he says, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. So Jesus, in his call to sinners that are heavy laden with the legalistic demands of the Pharisees, he represents to them a person who is calling them to forgiveness. He is the picture of meekness that we should be striving for. Not someone that's overbearing, not someone that's demanding, not someone that's legalistic, but someone who's characterized by grace and winsomeness. A kind of character that woos people to Christ instead of giving them an excuse to look elsewhere. That's first, right? And Matthew uses this term again when Jesus is riding into town on a donkey. He says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the, uh, to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble or meek, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, the meekness of Jesus in that scene is characterized in two ways. First, we see that he's humble enough to ride in on the foal of a donkey. Not, not a king, not like a king would, not coming into town on a chariot or riding on a horse maybe or something more triumphant like he really does deserve. In fact, he's not even coming in on a donkey. He's coming in on a donkey's colt. That's how meek he is. 
But then second, as Mark and Luke both point out, this colt has never been ridden before. And here's the reason that that points to Jesus' meekness. Here is an unbroken colt being ridden for the first time. And Jesus is meek and gentle enough that it doesn't mind. You ever tried to ride a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden before? But the meekest picture we get is in a place in Matthew's gospel where Matthew doesn't even use the term meek. It's when Jesus is arrested and dragged off and tried in a kangaroo court for crimes he didn't commit, for being a person that he's not. And as you read through Matthew's gospel, in fact, any of the gospels, particularly if you have a red-letter Bible, what you'll notice as Jesus is arrested and put on trial is that the red letters get further and further and further apart. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus does a whole lot of talking until he gets arrested. There's a picture of meekness because he doesn't feel the need to answer his accusers. He knows confidently who he is and what he's done. So patterning our lives after Jesus, the meek are humble, gentle people. But now what do they do? What do the meek do? The meek demonstrate meekness in patience. The meek demonstrate meekness in patience. Remember, meekness is not a virtue that can be exercised in private. This is a public display. The life of the Christian, in other words, should be on display for the world to see. So if the meek are humble, gentle people, then meekness is shown in contrast to people that are brash, antagonistic, and arrogant. Meekness is how the heavenly citizen responds to what the Bible would call a scoffer. Psalm 37 actually gives us a really good picture of this attitude. Jeremy read it earlier. I'm going to reiterate some of the words that he read. The psalm opens like this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. And then in verse 7, David says this. Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now we've been discussing the, how the kingdom of heaven's value system is different from that of the world. You know, it's, it's the poor in spirit that inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's those who mourn. It's the, those who are meek that inherit the earth. But what that also means is that the world we live in values quite the opposite. It's not just that they don't value those characteristics, it's that they do value the exact opposite. 
So instead of poor in spirit, the world values the self-righteous. Instead of those who mourn, the world values those who dismiss their own sin out of hand. And appear to be faultless. Instead of the meek, the world values the proud and the boastful. And those who are willing to step on anyone to get to the top. And because this is the world's value system, the temptation for the Christian is to covet the success of those in the world. As they progress up the corporate ladder, it's hard not to covet their success and think maybe I should apply those same values. We've all been there on that job interview, or maybe some of us have been there on that job interview, when they ask the fatal question, what are your weaknesses? I hate that question. How are you supposed to respond to that question? Every time you respond to that question, you think, I'm going to look like the biggest buffoon that's ever answered this question. And so what do you do? You do what everybody does. You soft pedal the answers. You pull back on your weaknesses, and you make them kind of like strengths. Or maybe like weaknesses that nobody really cares that much about. I work too hard. I care too much. And sometimes I can be too invested in my job. Workaholism is a pride in the workforce. So, hey, just soft pedal. But regardless of if you've ever been in that situation exactly or not, all of us know what it's like and can relate to the pressure of having to live as a Christian on the one hand, while also working in a world that doesn't value the same things that you value. So what does David in Psalm 37 propose to this problem? Patience. Patience. You wait. You don't covet the success of others. You choose meekness instead. If it doesn't go your way, it doesn't. Instead, you humbly accept the status that God has given to you at this moment. But if you're like me, you want to respond back to David. And you want to say, David, I, I get where you're coming from. I really do. But if you just sit down for a second and just listen to me, do you see how these people are progressing up the ladder? Do you know what that means for me? Do you know what this would mean for my career? Do you know what this, what's happening here? Do you know how bad this situation is? If you just let me just a little bit of latitude, then maybe I could. He responds with verse 11 of Psalm 37. You're going to inherit the earth. You're going to inherit the earth. This perfectly sums up the equation of life for the Christian. 80 years of meekness for a lifetime of peace, an eternity of peace. For however long you live, you, let's say it's 100 years, you have 100 years of meekness for everlasting peace. Is it worth it? That's constantly the equation that's going on in our head. Is it worth being meek here? There's a premise underlying all of this. And it's that God is the one who establishes us. God is the one who sets our course. God is the one 
who vindicates us, and God is the one who punishes the unrighteous. God is the one who does that. And so what he's given to us is a corner of his garden. He has given to each of us a corner. And so meekness is patiently putting our head down and going to work humbly in the area of the garden that he has given us stewardship over. Now your garden may be raising children. It may be being a a lineman for the electric company. It may be being a pastor or a student. It may be being a professor or CEO of a multinational corporation. Maybe as a retiree. But it's still a corner of his garden that he has given you stewardship over. And he expects you to work it with humble servitude. So you're not looking over the, your boundary line and you're saying, man, the sun stays there for a really long time. I could really use that little piece of property over there to grow my tomatoes. Well, if he hasn't put the sun on your land, then he obviously doesn't want you to grow tomatoes. And it's not paying attention to the scoffers that walk by your area of the garden and point out all of your weeds. It's not paying attention to them either. Now, there may be times where God expands your garden. Or maybe he relocates your garden, changes its location. But it's still a little piece of his garden that he has given to you. The wicked, the ones that are expanding their borders by ill-gotten means, they're stealing, in other words, David says, be still. Wait for the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Why? Because the whole garden belongs to Him. Every ounce of it is His. The borders that they're expanding, those are His too. And they don't escape His notice. He sees all. So David reminds us, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more, but the meek will inherit the land. It's all going to be yours. Just wait. The meek person, he isn't afraid of the way of the world. He's not afraid of the way that the world goes about their work because That person is treading on God's soil. What they're doing, they're doing on God's time. And God will be the one to exercise justice here. So even if that means they come and attack me, they're expanding their borders onto my property. Meekness is, as I've heard it put before, the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. Think about that for a second. The power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. That's meekness. Meekness is built on a foundation that you realize that that you're in spiritual poverty. And that you've received grace from God. 
It, it comes from mourning over your own sin and realizing that everyone around you, whether they realize it or not, they have weeds all over their garden. And God has given you enough in your garden to take care of. That goes for your wife or your husband as well. God has given them weeds too to tend to. I've got my own weeds to take care of. That's hard enough. I can't always worry about everyone else's weeds. I can't worry about everyone else's weeds. So as God has done with me, only He can change their heart. Only He's the one that's going to adjudicate all injustices. So the meek wait patiently. What do they wait patiently on? They wait patiently on justice from God. Last, the meek will receive a divine inheritance. The meek will receive a divine inheritance. So what does this whole inherit the earth thing mean? Now don't think at the end of all of this, you're meek, you're tilling your ground, you're working in your garden, and really what Jesus wants you to do is just work the ground in your garden and just weed it and plant and harvest and do all those things and then pay taxes and die. That's all he wants you to do. Don't think that all he's saying here is, look, be meek because, you know, it's just a better way to be. I'm tired of hearing all the complaints. I'd rather just people just be as peaceful as possible. Just stay there in your corner of the garden and just, just be meek, man. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He says, the meek will inherit the earth. Now, for some of you who think that heaven is the end goal for a Christian, this may sound like strange language. What does it mean to inherit the earth, then? If you're thinking, when I go to heaven, I die, I go to heaven, and that's about it. I'm there for eternity. They're chilling with Jesus in heaven. I'm sorry, that's not it. That's not what Christians believe. Now, Jesus is not using figurative language here. The meek will inherit the earth. There's a rumor going around churches that when we die, we go to heaven, we be with the Lord, we dwell with Him forever there. But that's only half true. Now, it's certainly true, Paul tells us, that when we die, we, go to, we will be away from the body and at home with the Lord, right? Jesus is on the cross, He tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's obvious that when we die, our bodies go into the grave to rot, and our souls go on to be with the Lord in heaven. That's obviously true. But if that's the end of your thinking, you haven't gone far enough. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.13, we, were waiting, uh, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 65.17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. John tells us in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then in verse 3, he tells us, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So it's abundantly clear as we read the New Testament that we're not to expect heaven to be our home for all of eternity, but that we'll go from there to a new earth. So heaven is not your home either. You're just passing through it. That just as God spoke 
originally and created earth that we dwell on now, so too he will speak again and the current heavens and the current earth will be renewed. And the eternal state that we're anticipating is one very similar to what we're experiencing now, except the the complete removal of sin and Jesus Christ dwelling with us forever. That's what we're anticipating. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says the meek will inherit the earth. It will all be yours. The people that will populate this eternal earth will be those who are poor in spirit. Will be those who mourned. And yes, it will be the meek. This is why Paul makes short work of the boasting of things that you can have in this life. He says, that's so weird. It's all yours. Everything's yours. Why would you boast about the things that you've got now? Everything's going to be yours. That's stupidity. What we're anticipating is dwelling forever in perfect bodies with Jesus Christ as our King. There will never be another election. Praise the Lord for that. There will never be any more political debate. Praise the Lord for that. Eternity with our King. Now, if this is the first time you've heard that kind of talk about new heavens and new earth, join us on Easter, on Resurrection Sunday. That will be the whole topic that we're going to be undertaking. But there's more. John says in Revelation 20, 15, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, the atoning work of Jesus Christ is the only thing that guarantees that lie. That's it. All others that fall outside of that atoning work will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, that's not comfortable. I don't enjoy talking about those things. But it's the truth. And it would be unloving if I didn't tell you. We can talk about new heavens and new earth all day, but we need to be abundantly clear. It's only for those who have placed their trust in Christ. For those that have come to a complete realization of their sin. That they're impoverished without Christ. And that it's only by His grace that they're even standing here. For those that are grieved by their sin and the sin of the world around them. And for those that respond in meekness to others. Knowing that they too have been treated with meekness by none other than Christ the King. The Son of God who came to them, who could have condemned them, but He came not to condemn them, though He had every right to, but He came to them riding on a colt into the city where they're going to spit on His face and where they're going to beat Him and eventually crucify Him so that the world through Him might be saved. As I said, the Beatitudes are describing the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all these Beatitudes are describing the same person. However, if I were to pick one, this one would be the hardest one. Certainly, this applies to anyone who's being mistreated by evil people. 
to respond in meekness. But it also applies to our everyday relationships as well. I've mentioned on a number of occasions that there are fractured relationships in this very room where there are hurt parties where people have had their feelings hurt and those relationships need to be restored and mended and they do. And there are many right here in this very room I know because I've heard from you. But let me also tell you there is a need for the offended party in meekness to get over it. No one's denying that you were wronged. No one is denying that that wasn't right and that you deserve an apology. But harboring the feelings of ill will towards another person is only going to destroy you and it's not in keeping with meekness. In our current psychological manuals, they'll tell you burying your feelings, hiding your feelings, that's not good. You need to express your feelings. You need to tell everybody what you're thinking. It's where tw- Twitter rants come from. I'm not telling you to bury your feelings. I'm telling you to crucify them. I'm telling you to nail them to the cross. To To trust that either Jesus has died for those sins against you, for that person, and forgiven them, or that they will one day suffer eternal judgment for their sins against him. And the sins against you are on that list because they're sins against his body. And so in the meantime, you needn't worry about exercising vengeance on another person or contemplating the wrongs that they've done against you. You need to be free from malice and vengeance and choose instead to respond in gentleness and self-control, to put your head down humbly and meekly into the garden that he has given to you and work it and be patient. Wait on the Lord. He will not fail to bring about justice for all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the many things that you've given to us. Not least of which is Christ's atoning work. Because of it, we have freedom from the guilt of sin, the penalty of everlasting torment, that in your graciousness you have reached down and saved us. And for that, Lord, we are grateful. Lord, put in the forefront of our minds that fact that we have been forgiven. Even though our offense against you was heinous, you forgave us. I confess it is hard to forgive. I confess even in my own life there are difficulties with forgiving certain ones. And Lord, you know who they are. 
But Lord, I pray that more than anything, I would wait patiently. All of us would wait patiently. Trusting that you will adjudicate all wrongs suffered. This is a hope that we long for. As we see all of the things going on in our world, even right now. We long for the day when you make right all wrongs suffered. And Lord, we know because you are perfect and good and holy that you will. And so we wait patiently and we trust you. Give us the endurance to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.